0: Under the teaching of your word, we ask that you lead us, and that you guide us, and that you speak through him, and that we would listen to your word and apply your teaching to our life. In Jesus' name we
1: pray, amen.
0: Reading from God's word, 2 Timothy 2. 14 through 26, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is God's good word for us.
1: So we've been looking at the book of 2 Timothy, uh, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, to, as, he's, as he's chained up, most likely, in a Roman prison, likely awaiting execution for being a Christian. And as we've listened to Paul's last words, we're listening to his final letter to his faithful protege, Timothy, whom he loved like a son. And as Paul is anticipating the end of his own life, He wants to write and encourage Timothy to carry on in his life and in his ministry to endure, though it will be really, really hard. And so in this section of the letter, Paul's going to give Timothy and us a set of key character qualities that should mark the life of a Christian. Uh, Almost like if you're looking for certain qualities or required skills for a job, you know, or a posting on, on a job description. A lot of people have considered new or different jobs, especially during and after the pandemic, you know, just to see what's out there, and maybe there's something better. And if you start looking online, uh, you can find some pretty zany requirements for some job postings. I started looking, not for me personally, just, you know, <laughs> for the sermon the research thing. And um, yeah, you'll find some stuff like requiring three to five years programming experience in an application that was only developed a year ago. So that's gonna be kind of hard to do. Or a, a reverse internship, where you pay the company $15 an hour to work for them. Uh, My personal favorite maybe was one that was looking for a Latin teacher that was a native Latin speaker. (laughs) Last I checked, Latin is a dead language. So yeah, I I don't know. That's gonna be hard to fill. Or an accounting job that required you to lift 50 pounds. Talk about crunching numbers, if you know what I mean. Uh, And a job that said you would not be hired if you were known to complain. Smoke, be boring, monotone, or mean to children. So, uh, but the job requirements that Paul gives to Timothy and to us are much more substantive than these. Uh, Paul gives us three key qualities that you might say for a Christian minister. And when I say a Christian minister, I mean that term most inclusively. Uh, We've used a question and response here a couple of times now where I ask, Who are the ministers at North Wake? And you say, We are. And I was thankful that that actually happened. Yeah, I was a little nervous. So yeah, I ask, Who are the ministers at North Wake? And you say, We are. We are are the ministers at North Wake. This is not to say that Scripture doesn't reserve leadership roles for like pastors and elders, uh, pastors slash elders or deacons. But it is to say that all Christians, in a real sense, are ministers of the gospel. We serve up the gospel, the good news of Christ, to others. It's all of our responsibility at some level. Now, if you're here today and you're listening and you're not a Christian, uh, I hope that this passage can still help you. I hope it can help you have a better idea of what Christian people are supposed to be like, of what the Bible calls us to be, even when we struggle to fully embody it. So. Let's take a look at these. Let's take a look at these character qualities for those of us who are called to be servants or ministers of Christ. This passage very simply gives us three. Uh, First, it shows that we ought to be keen. Second, that we ought to be clean. And third, that we ought to be kind. So first, keen or focused. We should be keen or focused. Second, we should be clean or pure. And third, we should be kind or gentle. First, be keen, Uh, verse 14 of chapter 2. Paul says, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So what do I mean when I say that a Christian or a disciple of Jesus must be keen or focused? I think here Paul is telling Timothy not to get caught up in arguments about words, but to focus on, to do his best to rightly handle the word of truth, the message of the gospel, the good word of salvation through Jesus Christ. Timothy is not to give his time and energy to getting caught up in every new debate and argument that's out there, but to make sure that he rightly understands and uses the word of truth. So you might think of it like this, a Christian minister or a Christian worker concerns himself with the word, not with words. Quarreling over words, this means like word battles or word fights. And Paul says you should charge the church before God, charge them before God, not to get into these. Now, as I read that, of course, it makes me wonder, uh, well, how do I know which controversies are worth wading into and which kinds of things are just word fights? You know, which kinds of things are important enough to argue over? If you think about it, Paul himself was not afraid of controversy or argumentation when the time called for it, but I think his passage here does give us some guidance on what kinds of discussions matter and then which should be avoided. So maybe a few guiding questions that this passage might bring out for us. First, is this a major issue or a minor issue? Is this argument really just a quibble over semantics or words? Is it just a word fight or is it a substantive matter of truth? That would be one question you could ask. Second, you could ask, is this a God-oriented concern or conversation or is it Verse 16, he calls some of these arguments irreverent. Other translations will render that godless, godless controversies, where God's not really taken into account here. He's not at the center of the picture. And then third, you might ask, well, is this a matter that Scripture speaks clearly to, or is it really just speculative? Later in this passage, Paul will warn us about what he calls foolish, ignorant, controversies. In other words, things we really don't know about. In his first letter to Timothy, just before this one, he'll tell Timothy to avoid myths, endless genealogies, speculations, and vain discussion, things Scripture doesn't really speak to. They're speculative. So, ultimately, Timothy will know what things are worth debating If he will focus on doing his best, verse 15, to present himself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So avoiding arguments about words and focusing on the word. Now this rightly handling, this means straight cutting, It means skillfully knowing how to lay out the message of truth for yourself and for others. You might think of it as kind of like working with a skill saw. If you don't know what a skill saw is, I brought one from my house. It is not plugged in. See, we're good. We're good here. This is a skill saw, or I guess some people might call it a a circular saw. Now, when I was younger, I did uh, a lot of work with a small town pastor named Mr. Roy, most people called him Brother Roy. I called him Mr. Roy, uh, but he was a part-time pastor and a part-time carpenter, handyman. Mr. Roy could build anything or fix anything. He's he's over 70 years old now, and I'm sure he could still work circles around me. And I remember one day we were getting ready to cut uh, a sheet of plywood to go down for some subflooring or, or something like that. And I asked Mr. Roy, "Do you want me to set up the table saw, you know, so we can get a straight cut down this plywood?" He had a skill saw in his hand. He drew a line on the piece of plywood. He said, No, I think think I'll just cut it with this. Like, okay, here we go. And man, Mr. Roy looked down that line and he freehanded, ripped a straight, perfect line down that piece of plywood. And, which is a lot harder to do, by the way, if you've never done it, take one of these, get a piece of plywood and try to just draw your line and cut straight across the wood. I was doing something like this the other day. Uh, we had a leak, a, a leak under our sink that caused a little bit of water damage. So I had to replace a piece of plywood under our sink. And I thought about Mr. Roy cutting that piece of plywood. Should I say, you know what I'm gonna do? I'll take this skill saw right here. I'm gonna cut a straight line down that piece of plywood. <laughs> My line did not look like <laughs> Mr. Roy's line. It was a little swervy curvy because he had had a lot of practice, a a lot of practice. They call it a skill saw (laughs) because it takes skill to cut with it, which I did not have. But Paul's saying that right handling, straight cutting the word of truth is something you need practice at. It's something that takes all Christians time and effort and energy. Look at what he says. He says, do your best, Timothy, do your best. Whether you're preaching a sermon or teaching your children or just having a conversation with someone about the message of Jesus, this is going to take practice. Do your best could be translated, make every effort or pursue with zeal and fervor, straight cutting the word of truth. is not just a thing for like, oh yeah, I'll get around to that. Is my understanding of scripture or the gospel really on point? I don't know. But hey, that's what pastors are for, Right? Not so much. Your own cutting, your own straight cutting of truth is meant to be earnest, zealous, not just close enough for government work, you know, as they say in the construction business. A Christian must be keen and focused on the main thing. Unlike these two guys uh, that he mentions in verse 17, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved, see that? It's not straight cutting, They've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. These guys didn't cut the word straight. They swerved, and they were teaching that the resurrection, like the final resurrection of Christian believers, had already happened, and they likely meant spiritually. They were perhaps influenced by Greek thought of the day that the body and material things were like lesser kind of like uh, evils that were kind of put up with. In the spiritual realm, that was really, really good. So they claimed that there was no final bodily resurrection for believers, but the resurrection had already happened for us inwardly and spiritually. And as with the case, I think, with so many cults and false teachings, you can see how there is a grain of truth to what they were saying because there is an internal resurrection, a spiritual resurrection in the life of a Christian. As Paul says in Romans 6, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We quote this at baptisms often. Someone's baptized, they are raised to walk in newness of life. There's an inward spiritual resurrection. But it seemed like these false teachers, they so emphasized that one truth to the ignoring or the denial of another truth, which was that there really will be a final day of bodily resurrection for believers, just like Jesus had a bodily resurrection. They emphasized one to the exclusion of the other. They were unbalanced, so they didn't cut straight. Now, this seems to have upset the church, caused doubt and division. and likely kept Timothy up at night. So Paul reminds him, it's going to be okay. Verse 19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Interestingly, these uh, two lines, the Lord knows those who are His, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, you see them in quotes in your Bible. And they are quotes. They're quotes from the Old Testament, uh, from Numbers chapter 16, which comes from an interesting story uh, about Korah. K-O-R-A-H, Korah. He was um, an Israelite that challenged Moses and Aaron's leadership after they left Egypt. Korah was from the tribe of Levi, uh, and he could serve in the ancient tabernacle like an assistant, but he couldn't be a priest. And Korah apparently resented that, and he calls Moses and Aaron out. And he says, "Um, you you know, Moses and Aaron, the entire Congregation of people were set apart from God, so set apart for God, so why can't we all be priests? How arrogant of Moses to assume this kind of authority. But just like the false teachers in Second Timothy right here, Korah took one truth that, yes, the whole congregation was set apart to be God's own chosen people, to the exclusion of another truth that he had chosen, Moses and Aaron, as his leaders for them. So Korah leads this uprising against Moses and Aaron, but it doesn't last too long because if you know the story, the next morning, God causes a fissure in the earth to open up right under Korah and his whole crew and they just fall to their deaths. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> Thank you, exactly. Oh, that's perfect. You need to pay whoever that was. That was amazing. So I think this is Paul's way of telling Timothy, man, hey, don't worry too much about these guys. God has a way of delineating who belongs to Him. Just stay clear of them and stay focused on the main thing, rightly handling, straight cutting the word of truth. Be keen or focused. So, what about you? What about us? Do you tend to major on the minors or minor on the majors of the Christian faith? Do you get caught up in foolish, speculative debates? Seminary students, you should probably watch out for this, though it's not just seminary students that get pulled into this, is it? Are you doing your best instead to present yourself and your use of the gospel message to God as a workman who would not need to be ashamed of their work? Be keen, be focused, Paul says. Secondly, Be clean, be clean. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness faith love and peace along with those who call on the lord from a pure heart so paul changes his emphasis or his metaphor and his emphasis slightly from that of a workman to a vessel like a utensil or a bowl or a platter or something like that he says you know in a big house like a mansion there's all kinds of all kinds of dishes some dishes are the fine china for serving you know up dinners for weddings or parties or special meals at family gatherings. And other dishes are used to throw out the scraps. They're used for composting or worse. His point is this, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be useful to God with your life? I mean, really, is that something you're interested in? being useful to God. John Stott writes, "No higher honor could be imagined than to be an instrument in the hand of Jesus Christ, to be at his disposal for the furtherance of his purposes, to be available whenever wanted for his service." You know, perhaps sometimes we take it as a privilege or take it for granted, take the privilege for granted that we belong to Jesus and to be used in his service. I mean, this is truly a privilege. It's not a right or an expectation? Do you want your life to count for something good, for something eternal in God's kingdom? Well then Paul says, if you do, the essential quality is not that you be smart, articulate, good looking, or even particularly gifted or charismatic, but that you be pure, clean, wholehearted. A person who loves God in public and in private not duplicitous, not perfect, but not duplicitous, integrated. In other words, for a Christian, character matters. Uh, Pastor Brian Chapel points out that, you know, this saying, character matters, it's kind of a debated saying these days, especially in politics, where sometimes character and competency uh, sometimes get pitted against each other. You know, the, the Chapel writes, the analogy gets made, who would you rather have at the control of the plane? A competent pilot with moral weakness or an incompetent pilot with moral character, if you had to choose. <laughs> but Chapel writes, he's like, well, this is kind of apples and oranges because, you know, leading a state or a nation is a different thing from flying a plane. Plus, even if we grant that, what happens if the plane crashes any- anyway in the Pacific and then the immoral pilot is the one who's in charge of rationing the survival uh, kits to everyone, or he's the one that decides who gets to stay on the raft when when you run out of room. Maybe you do want a pilot with good character after all. Or what about your doctor? Person of integrity, would you prefer? (laughs) Or your car mechanic? You want them to tell you the truth? Doesn't integrity matter most when there's something on the line that you hold dear? Paul says, not just what about a pilot or a politician or a physician, what about for a Christian? For a Christian, character matters most because it matters to God. So, Paul says in verse 22, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee these things, he says, which means, if you didn't know, run away from, seek safety and flight from youthful passions. Different translations will render this differently. Some will say the temptations of youth. This is most commonly rendered uh, youthful lusts, which seems to at least imply sexual temptations, though I think the context here would suggest this is broader than that, which I'll expand on in just a second. But I think sexual temptation does apply here. Especially for us when sexual temptations abound in our day and age. I mean, to keep one's mind and your eyes and your body pure can seem an impossible task. Uh, C.S. Lewis called sexual morality the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. Because we live in an era that's totally inundated with sexual imagery and advertising. I mean, for one, there's a lot of money to be made off of that if we keep our sexual instincts inflamed. So it can just seem, it can seem futile these days to even try, young people especially, to protect your mind and your body and your eyes from what is impure. Lewis goes on to write though, he says, it can be done. He says, in war in mountain climbing in learning to skate or swim or ride a bicycle, even in fastening a stiff collar with cold fingers, people quite often do what seemed impossible before they did it. It is wonderful what you can do when you have to. We may indeed be sure that perfect chastity will not be attained by any merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. After each failure, ask for forgiveness. Pick yourself up and try again. Very often what God first helps us towards is not just the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For however important chastity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process of repentance trains us in habits of the soul, which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. So what about you? Are you fleeing from sexual temptation or are you flirting with it? Rosaria Butterfield writes If you bring the baby tiger into your house and name it Fluffy, don't be surprised that if you wake up one day and Fluffy is eating you alive, that's how sin works, and Fluffy knows her job. So keep fleeing, keep repenting, keep confessing, keep fighting. For many years now, every night at 9 p.m., this verse has popped up as a reminder on my iPhone. It says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Maybe that scripture would be a good reminder to go on your iPhone, too. I don't know. But as I said here, um, youthful passions likely refers to more than just sexual temptation uh, because the context of the section is actually about what? It's mostly about words. It's mostly about conflict, debate. Again, Brian Chappell, he suggests um, a few things that we might consider youthful passions in this sense, things like impatience. It's a youthful passion to wish that people and situations could just be fixed right this minute, not realizing that people and families and churches take a long time to change. Impatience. Uh, maybe harshness would be a youthful passion—a tone of voice, or a facial expression, or offensive nicknames that seek to put others down and control them rather than serve them. Impatience, harshness, maybe contentiousness. Whereas a younger person, you love debate, you love winning. If you smell blood in a debate, you're like a shark. You know, you love to get a good put down or a slam dunk on somebody in a verbal in a verbal exchange. And your speech is most often punctuated with the conjunction, but. Yeah, but, ah, but my point is that, but, but, uh, this is again and again and again. You might add to his list cockiness, arrogance, unwillingness to listen or to receive correction, hot takes and snap judgments. These are youthful passions that the church is urged to run away from. And not just run away from them, but to run towards something else. You see that? doesn't just tell you start running somewhere. He gives you somewhere to run. He says pursue, which is a strong word used in like hunting, for chasing, even used for Paul when he was persecuting Christians, that he pursued them. So he says to pursue a life of righteousness, godly conduct. Pursue a life of faith, simple trust in God. Through life's up and downs. Pursue a life of love, love for others that persist. Pursue a life of peace, harmony with others, seeking to always get along so far as it depends upon you, along with others who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Be clean, he says. Be clean. And then, third and last, be kind. Be kind. Verse 23, he says, "'Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth.'" And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Be kind. You know, it's really tempting to get sucked into responding like for like when someone starts a quarrel with you in person, on Facebook, or just in your mind. But Timothy is told to take the high ground and to be kind to everyone Teaching them rather than trouncing them. Winning persons instead of trying to win arguments. Uh, Late pastor and writer Eugene Peterson, he wrote about walking in Yellowstone Park with his wife and three children. He said, as my family and I were walking in a mountain meadow in Yellowstone Park, there was a little boy of four or five, about 30 yards out in the meadow, picking exquisite alpine flowers. You're not supposed to do this. It's against the rules to pick flowers in National Park. I was outraged. I yelled at him, don't pick the flowers. He just stood wide-eyed, innocent, and terrified. He dropped the flowers and started crying. You can imagine what happened next. My wife and children, my children especially, were all over me. Daddy, what you did was far worse than what he did. He was just picking a few flowers, and you yelled. You scared him. You ruined him. He's probably going to have to go to counseling when he's 40 years old. And my children were right. You cannot yell people into holiness. You cannot terrify people into the sacred. My yelling was a far worse violation of the holy place than his picking a few flowers. Later, I had plenty of opportunity to reflect upon this, reminded as I frequently was by my children. He says, I do this a lot. I bluster and yell on behalf of God's holy presence instead of taking my shoes off myself kneeling on holy ground, and inviting whoever happens to be around to join with me. The Lord's servant, the Lord's ministers, must not be blustery, quarrely people, but kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil, which means patient when wronged, patient when offended, I like to think of myself as a fairly patient person, but it's a lot harder when you're offended, isn't it? William Barclay says, um, there may be greater sins than touchiness, but there is none which does greater damage in the Christian church. Touchiness, (laughs) irritability, being patient when wronged. Paul's instructing Timothy and us to live out the proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Timothy must correct his opponents. Yes, he must do that. Correct your opponents, he says, but with gentleness. Why? Why be gentle? Why be kind? Look at verse 25 and 26. It's because those people aren't really his enemy. They're not even fully in their right minds. They're they're held captive by evil. Paul says they're deceived by the devil himself. This doesn't lead Timothy to hate them as some sort of demonic, these people as demonic figures, but rather to have empathy and love for them because this means that people are never our ultimate enemies. Uh, Megan Phelps Roper grew up in the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, which if you don't know, Westboro Baptist Church is essentially a hate group Uh, They pick at the funerals of soldiers and shooting victims, and they celebrate tragedies and natural disasters and is given a bad name to Baptist churches everywhere. And Phelps Roper became the rally scheduler and the PR person for Westboro Baptist Church at a relatively young age. But in 2012, she began to have a change of heart thanks to people that she interacted with, of all places, Twitter. She may be the only person who's ever changed her mind because of a Twitter Twitter interchange, but this is what she said. She said, people that I sparred with on Twitter would come out to the picket line to see me when I protested in their city. We started to see each other as human beings, and it changed the way that we spoke to each other. It took time, but eventually these conversations planted seeds of doubt in me. After she left Westboro Baptist Church, she was totally shunned and rejected by that church and by her family, but she found herself embraced and loved by many of her former opponents. She said, They came to me with pointed questions, tempered with kindness and humor. They approached me as a human being, and that was more transformative than two full decades of outrage, disdain, and violence. Why be kind? Why patiently endure evil? Not just because it's the right thing to do, which it is, but it's also the greatest hope you have for seeing someone else's heart change. Paul's great hope is that Timothy's detractors will actually come around, that they'll repent, perhaps especially in light of Timothy's kindness, which makes sense. Wasn't it God's kindness that led you to repentance? That finding instead of a hammer of judgment coming down on you, you found that he let the hammer of judgment nail him to a cross in your place. Isn't that what changed you? Paul would elsewhere write the same thing in uh, the next book, Titus chapter 3. He says, remind them to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating one another and hated by others. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Why be kind? Because this was all of us. We were foolish. We were slaves. And Christ had loving kindness on you. Christ is the truly kind servant. He is the truly pure vessel. And He is the truly keen workmen, above all workmen. John Stott Stott writes, and I'll close with this, he says, "...so meek was Jesus in his ministry that he would never shout or make a noise, and so sensitive that he would deal gently with people whose courage had been bruised and whose faith had been burned low. And when people rose up in opposition to him, he did not resist or retaliate." He gave his back to the smiters, his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard, his face to those who spat upon him, and eventually allowed himself to be led like a sheep, silent and unresisting to the slaughter. Such was Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord's servant par excellence, who described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. And this same meekness and gentleness of Christ must characterize all who claim to be the Lord's servants today. So as we approach this table, we admit once again our need for forgiveness for the many ways that we have not represented Christ well, that we have not been focused or keen, that we have not been pure, perhaps we have not been kind. But we receive here today once again the forgiveness of our Lord who paid for our sins by his blood. And we receive once again through the teaching of his word and the fellowship of the saints, strength to live for him again. For only in him and through his transforming work in our lives can we live like him, to be keen and clean, to be kind. So we approach this table today for forgiveness and strength to live the life that Christ has called us into. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're not walking in earnest faith with Christ, then we would ask that you not take the Lord's Supper today, but that you would take the Lord Himself. He offers Himself to you in loving kindness, even today. Uh, For those who are taking the Lord's Supper, as usual, if you'll use the the wall aisles and the center aisle to approach the table, and then these other two aisles to return to your seats, Um, and I'll lead us in taking the Lord's Supper all together once everyone has been served the elements. And if you uh, have trouble approaching the table and don't have someone to bring the elements to you, if you'll just raise your bulletin after I pray, and there'll be some folks in the back that will bring that to you uh, as I'm praying. So...